Um, <laughs> now, the gremlins and what we've been hearing about um, um, John MacArthur and uh, there's a couple of other pastors in California that are risking arrest in the next few hours by meeting in California. So just please pray for their protection. Um, they're scared, I think. They're, they're tentatively afraid of the power that John MacArthur has got. So they're not attacking him yet. But they are attacking other pastors of smaller churches. Uh, and, you know, as Sue and I were talking about this um, yesterday and today, you know, if it's starting over there, we just need to pray for protection and thanks to God for the blessing of living in Western Australia at the moment. And we are so privileged and we are so fortunate to live in this state. Uh, so, you know, that there are so many things going on. Actually, when um, Eric was talking to me about all of the technical gremlins that have been ha happening over the, the last two weeks, I said to him, I said, well, that's the Gavin Newsom effect, you know. <laughs> and if you don't know who that is, that's the governor of California that's causing Christians over there so many problems. So it's the Gavin Newsom effect. Pray against it in the name of Jesus. Now listen, we're getting on to... I've been absolutely amazed at, um, at the response I've had online and texts and, and emails about this message, uh, especially about the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, uh, because it, it's, it's so close to people who are aware of the scripture and, and, and are aware like the tribe of Issachar was for Israel, that we're, we're aware of the times that we're living in. And I tell you what, one day is nothing like the day before. We're changing daily. The, 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 the pressure upon believers and, and the intensity of the things that are happening. And I believe, quite frankly, it has a lot to do with the upcoming American um, election. And I just hope, um, I know a lot of people, I, I don't understand why a lot of Christians don't like um, President Trump. But let me tell you something. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> you are kidding me. You are, Gavin, will you please stop this? I thought I'd turn this off. It is, yes. It's the Gavin Newsom effect. I'm serious. Um, and, I, and a lot of people, you know, Amir Safati um, uh, and a couple of other guys, Jan Markell online, are just saying it's come out of the, the woodwork over the last three or four weeks that people can feel something happening. And uh, it, it's prophecy that doesn't get taught in so many churches. So many people that have come to Calvary Chapel, Perth, and when I have a chat with them, having a coffee in the cafe, they said, we've just looked around Perth and no one is teaching this kind of stuff. Now, I don't focus on this. I, I love prophecy, but it's one third of the Bible. So at least a third of your preaching should be about prophecy and things to come and fulfilled prophecy in the past. But it astounds me that um, I don't know why pastors are afraid of it. Some of the um, comments you get is that, oh, well, it'll divide the congregation. Oh, well, you know, it scares people. Oh, well. Well, listen, if you're not watching the news and aware of things going on in the world at the moment, how would prophecy scare you? It's crazy out there at the moment. Everything that's happening is just irrational. And so, you know, the thing that I love about uh, this particular portion of Scripture is the fact it shows the character of God. And it shows his um, veracity, his truthfulness, and his total and utter control over everything that's happening on this earth. And sometimes I say to him, listen... Can't you just give us a win sometimes? You know, it's just like evil is just coming like a flood. And have you got that verse um, that I want to, to put up, Eric? 1 Samuel 15, 29. So many people have, have challenged me over the years about our oh, prophecy, you know, um, you know, don't go there. 
Uh, and the other thing is, by the way, that's all in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, we worship the God in the New Testament of, of the New Testament. And I'm saying, no, th that's completely wrong. And I've got this verse here, and it's one of my favorite um, verses. And it's simply this, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. God is omniscient. Your father in heaven is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows everything that's going on in the world. And this whole series that we're doing at, mo at the moment is called The Plan of God. And everything that occurs is in the plan of God. And ultimately, the plan of God can be reduced right down to this, to take fallen humanity from Genesis chapter 3 and place them in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And what's happening now is every bit in between. And uh, it's like um, years ago there was an analogy um, uh, about God and about his omniscience. And it was given this way, and I'm sure some or even most of you have heard it, but I'm going to remind you of it today. If you're in a large metropolitan um, city and you're standing on the street because there's a huge parade going through, it's a marvellous celebration of whatever, and what happens is we get to sit or stand in one particular place on the sidewalk in the city watching the parade pass before us. But all we can see of the parade is the bit that comes around the corner and disappears around that corner. That's called the present. That's the reality for us. But the analogy is like this. God is in fact in the helicopter and he's above the city and he can see the start of the parade and he can see the end of the parade at exactly the same time. And that explains quite simply even to children that nothing is a surprise to God. Absolutely nothing is. And in prophecy, uh, empires rise, empires fall, kings are in place, kings are taken down, people live, people die, and nothing is unknown to God. And when we look at the big picture of prophecy in, in the Bible, the thing that you have to understand is the God that's in charge of all of human history, everything that's happening, is also in charge of you personally and everything that's happening in your life he knows about everything that you're going to do tomorrow he already knows everything that you've done yesterday some good some bad you're already forgiven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ you have to understand that he is in charge of not only the whole planet but he is your personal father in heaven and people like to look at prophecy as the sort of spectacular action movie that happens sort of out there no it includes you because it includes everything that happens on this earth and you say well I'm not really part of um, things that are going on prophetically when you pray when you pray every day, when you come before the Lord and you've got your prayer list there, you are in the army of God praying for his will to happen on this earth. You are involved whether you understand it or not. And this is not some, some peek at something that is um, unusual or fascinating or whatever. This is part of the, the things that are happening in this world and you are are involved if you are a born-again Christian you are involved and you have power and you have authority in the name of Jesus Christ to pray for things that you want to see happen and I'm not saying from a personal point of view I'm saying from a prophetic point of view and every prayer that you pray should bring glory and honor to the God who saved you and that's just that's the way it is you know, there's a verse in Revelation chapter 19, verses uh, 10b. And I don't know why more pastors don't include it as their personal memory verse. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Why? 
Because when we see it come to pass, we know that he's in charge. And everything that's happening at the moment is these things that are happening right before our very eyes. When I first started this particular um, uh, study on the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, it was after meeting Chuck Missler in 1997 and he opened up my wife's eyes and my eyes to the, the, the incredible um, brilliance of the way that God has set things up over the, uh, over the decades and over the centuries. And so this thing here, when I was looking at this in 1997, 1998, 1999, and I looked at all the players in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, I thought, now this is going to be for the next generation because none of them look like they're capable, none of them look like they're in place. It's going to be some time off. And you know, 30 years ago, you and I could almost guarantee that tomorrow would be much like today. Next week would be much like last week. Next year is not going to be that much different to last year. But we live in times where every day things are changing. Every day we're hearing stuff occurring around the world that is just simply mind-blowing and it's in the scriptures. So I just want to finish off uh, Ezekiel 38. And, and uh, I rushed through to that um, because of time constraints last, last week for that incredible verse 19 and 20 so there's going to be a great earthquake it says so in God God is going to bring it about in verse 19 and verse 20 this great earthquake this rolling earthquake this massive destruction of Israel physically in verse 20 he says so that the fish of the sea the birds of the heavens the beasts of the field all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall what shake at my presence he's done this and I used to think to myself why how is it when I was first studying this this whole prophetic war how is it that the nation of Israel is left totally and utterly defenseless how is it that with the army that they've got the Navy, they've got, you know, they've got five Dolphin-class sub submarines and you can't find out yes or no, but I can tell you what, they'll be nuclear-armed. Five Dolphin-class submarines. They've got F-16s, F-15s, F-35s. They've got um, patrol boats with um, specialised weaponry. Um, they've got 170,000 people uh, in their army. I mean, I'm saying to the Lord, how on earth... Do you prevent Israel from, from defending itself? And verses 19 and 20 are the answer. He completely and utterly physically destroys the infrastructure in that nation that renders them helpless before the enemy. And I'm thinking, okay, why? Why? And he says that the, everyone who's on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. There is nothing left of their infrastructure. And in verse 21 he says, And I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God, and every man's sword will be against his brother. There's total and utter chaos. And verse 22, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. This is Gog and his troops. With pestilence and bloodshed, and I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus, this is the reason, thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. How many times have you witnessed to family, to friends, to workmates, and they go, that's your God. I don't even believe him. I don't even believe that he exists. I don't, you know, you've got your faith. I've got my lifestyle. No thanks. God is going to shake this whole world and very soon and whether you love him or you don't you will know that he is God 
And I'm going to reinforce this, this. Why does God in his plan and infinite wisdom do this? It's quite obvious that's render Israel totally alone and totally defenseless because of the verses that we read last week. And I'll just go through some of them. Ezekiel 36, verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, that's Israel, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. The whole world will be looking at Israel in the very near future with this invading force on the top Syrian border in the mountains of Israel. And God is saying to you right now, tell your friends that everyone is going to know God whether they like it or not because of what's going to happen in this event. And in verse 36, Ezekiel 36, 36, Then the nations which are left all around you, this is Israel, shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. That's emphatic. Remember when I read out uh, that passage, one of my favorite passages in, in Ephesians 2 last week, when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, he, God the Father, made you alive in Jesus Christ. And later on it says, and he has raised you up into heavenly places to be seated in the heavens with Jesus Christ. All of those verbs are in the past. He's already done it. And what has he said here? I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. No arguments. You cannot win an argument with God. Have you ever had a little sort of pity pat, you know, with God where things haven't gone your way and you've just, you know, got a bit sour with him and say, well, why couldn't have it happened that way? It's in the plan of God. Get through it. Tomorrow's another day. Ezekiel 38, verse 23. I'm only going to read 23 here. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. There are going to be people, when they stand before the judgment throne of Jesus at the end of the tribulation, the great white throne, and not one of them will ever be able to say, I didn't know anything about you. Even creation in Romans 1 declares the glory of God. You don't have to have had a Bible. You don't have to have had a, uh, an evangelist walk past you and tell you all about, all about Jesus. You can look at creation itself and it declares the glory of God. I can remember when I first started working in the mining industry in uh, 1989 and I wasn't a believer but I used to go way out into the great um, Victorian desert on my own <laughs> seriously Stuart here's a land cruiser here's a map here's a compass off you go and there I was 250 k's outside of Kalgoorlie right in smack dab in, in, in the uh, desert on my own and, you know, it was only in later years I thought, you dummy, you could have died any day. You know what I mean? They, there was no training back in those days. There was no occupational health and safety in those days. You got a Land Cruiser, a 250,000 topo map, a compass, some food and water, off you go and do your work. And it was just amazing. But you know what? The most beautiful thing... God was just setting me up for my salvation a couple of years later. And I used to, at night time, set a fire and I'd have my swag and I'd have the Land Cruiser and I'd be sitting there and I'd have cooked myself some kind of curry in a Dutch oven. You know what a Dutch oven? Those heavy stainless uh, iron pots and you put them on the coals all day. Best curries I've ever had in my life. But I looked up at the skies, you know, on a moonless night. I looked up at the Milky Way and it was staggeringly beautiful. 
And you can't, even as an unbeliever, deny the fact that someone must have put this all in place. It's just... Have you ever done that? Have you ever been right out in the desert where there are no lights, no moon, and stared upwards? I tell you what, it's so bright that at 10 o'clock at night I could hold out, open up the West Australian and see the words on the page and read the words on the page. It is so bright. It is just amazing. So even the creation itself declares the glory of God. Ezekiel 39, 6 and 7, this is part of what we're going to do today. And I will send fire on Magog, that's the Russian states, and on those who live in security or in false um, confidence in the coastlands of the sea, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Do you know what? As we gather here this afternoon, take this principle and everyone here is doing the same thing in Canning Vale that Israel is doing for God. We are proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because we actually gather here in his name at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and you would not have the, uh, uh, the least understanding of what spiritually effect we're having on the groups around us, around the people around here. And I'll tell you why. When Sue and I were in Russia in 1998, we took the kids over there on a uh, mission trip. Um, the Finnish guy that was in charge of the mission that we went over there with, he had such a wonderful relationship with the, with the Russian officials in, in a lot of the towns in Western Russia, close to Finland and close to Poland. And what he was um, doing was every week he would go and meet with the police chief and the mayor and other prominent people within the towns where we were uh, and he would um, have meetings with them because they were very concerned about Western Christians coming into Russia. Even though the wall had fallen down, even though Yeltsin had been and Gorbachev had been, they were still old-time Russians. They were still dedicated communists, but they allowed us to come in there. And you know what? When I mean that when we meet here in this room this afternoon, we're having a spiritual impact on the suburbs around us, and I'll tell you why. Because the head of the uh, police in St. Petersburg told Kari this. He said, I don't understand why. I do not understand why. But when your Western teams of Christians come to Russia every summer... The children in the camps, their behavior is totally changed. But do you know something, Kari? The behavior of the children in the towns around the camps who haven't had the privilege to go to those camps, their behavior changes as well. Just because of the presence, the powerful praying presence of Christians in these towns, it was having an effect on the behavior of people in the surrounding villages. And that's what we do when we meet. That's why the evil individuals in America are allowing casinos to stay open. They're allowing um, goodness knows what to stay open. But they want to shut churches down. Why? Because they know that we have an impact in the community in which we live. And they don't want that impact. You know, the whole thing about the, all of this going on, I hope you understand, is Marxism and communism. By the way, no relative. But Marxism and, and, um, and, and uh, communism. And you know what? Do you remember a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, they were tearing down all the statues in America? Why? Because they want to destroy history. Because if you destroy history, people don't know who they are. Because they don't know where they came from. And if they don't know where they came from, they don't know where they're likely to be going. So they destroy history so that they have you in the here and now and you don't understand the lessons of history. You don't understand what went before. You know, people who haven't studied the mistakes of history are bound to repeat them. 
You know, I, I see, um, uh, you know, that we've had this quarter of a century relationship with the Perth Jewish community. And what is it, 70, 80 years after World War II and anti-Semitism worldwide is on the rise again? It's just unbelievable. And, you know, it, it's just, it's the human heart. It's Jeremiah 17:9. The human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and who can know it? Who can understand it? Verse 10 is that the Lord can understand it. And he can change it and he can... Um, we, don't, we don't get this old heart transformed when we believe in Jesus Christ. We get a new one. We get a new one. Ezekiel 39, 21 verse 23. And I will set my glory among the nations... All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the Gentiles, verse 23, shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them and I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. The plan of God. But you know what? Even on a bad day that we can have, you're still a child of God. You are indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your redemption. You don't have to be worried about, am I ever going to get there? And this is why I will never be a five-point Calvinist. Five-point Calvinists say, you'll only be saved if you've got total faith right to the end. Funnily enough, I've never met a Christian yet in 30 years that's had that kind of faith. Even the Calvinists. Um, I'm going to break into this little um, series here and this, this drives the guys nuts but they're so patient with me. Can you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, Eric please, verses 3, 4 and 5. Turn in your Bibles. 1 Peter 1, 3, 4 and 5. And you know, when we, this, I, I first got taught this by a brilliant teacher from uh, Baraka Church in Houston, Texas. And uh, it was 1998, 1999. And we had been, uh, I was born again in the Cottesloe Brethren Church, excellent teaching, certain theological issues, um, but brilliant people, wonderful people. Then we went to a, a, what I would call a lukewarmed-up charismatic church, nothing very adventurous. And then we went to a... Pentecostal church, and I, I often wonder why, but God was showing us all the different shades of Christianity so that we would know, get back to God and don't worry about denominations. Get back to God, and you know, I've never left this book since. This is my denomination. This is the basis of my faith. What's in here guides me. Not what someone from a particular denomination tells me. And has he got it up there? Oh, wonderful. When we were listening to this um, um, teaching one night, late at night, Sue still had some misgivings because we had watched certain American speakers on early morning television way back in the 90s. Any of you did that? We'll get up at, yeah, someone, Jim's laughing. You get up at, if you were silly enough to get up at 4.30, you could get Copeland. If you were really silly, you could get up at 5 o'clock and you get Marilyn Hickey, who would sell you a, an anointed handkerchief for, for $50. And I'm looking in my Bible and I'm going, where on earth does it say that? And then you'd get Joyce or you'd get Creflo or you'd get Benny or you'd get all of these guys and um, I just gave up. I just came, went back to the Bible. But we, you know, these things when you're relatively new Christians, it, it affects some people and it affects the strength of their faith. And we got this teaching from uh, Bob team uh, on this particular passage and after we had finished listening to it, 
My wife could have got out of bed and walked on the ceiling. She was so happy. She's nodding now because she remembers that night. Because it was the power of God, the witness of God, and the word of God that settled it for her that night. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice Peter didn't say us who are really good people. He just said us. He's Bruce's laughing. He has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's Jesus on the cross, his death, his burial and his resurrection. If you believe in that, you're going to heaven. If you believe that in your heart, it's seated in your spirit, you are going to heaven. And verse 4, to an inheritance. It's waiting up there for it, us already. God's had it since before the foundation of the world, and he's going to give it to you when you get there. But he's already got it for you. Our inheritance, incorruptible, nothing can happen to it, undefiled, your worst day can't have it taken away from you. Your worst day, you don't have to be a goody two-shoes every day. You should want to be, but if you have a bad day, God's still up there holding your inheritance, and I'm going to explain to you why. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not Fade away. It is reserved for you in heaven who are kept by your goodness. Does it say your goodness up there? No. It says by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, when you get to heaven and you come up before Jesus and he's sitting on the beamer seat, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, welcome home. And you'll think, but I think of all the things that I did. As far as the east is from the west, so are your sins from me. The only person who remembers your sins is you. Because you have an inheritance in Jesus Christ because of your faith and trust and belief in what he did on the cross, you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Why? Because God said it. And what does he say to Israel? I said it and I will do it. I am the God who doesn't change. I am the God of truth. It's one of my attributes. Veracity, it's one of my attributes. I cannot lie. Seven times God says in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, I cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So if he's got an inheritance waiting for you, you should be rubbing your hands on the way home from church today saying, wonder what it is, because it exists. And the enemy will try and steal that joy from you every day of your life. And what's your safety? You go back to this. And if you have to, you go back to 1 Peter 1, 3, 4 and 5. And you know it's up there waiting for you right now. God, your heavenly Father, is holding it for you. Why? Because it's kept by the power of God. Not your behavior. Does that excuse bad behavior? No, it doesn't. But once you believe, we're going through the book of Corinthians at the moment. 
And if anyone could lose their salvation, that mob could. But they can't. Because Peter and uh, sorry, Paul in the very first chapter says, You are called to be saints. You are sanctified in Jesus Christ, and you are part of the church of God that just happens to be in Corinth. And all of you are called to be saints, sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be part of the body of Christ here in Perth. That's part of your destiny. And don't let anyone tell you. In fact, now that I've told you, someone's going to come up to you in the next two weeks and say, oh, I don't think that's personally true. I've heard someone say, Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, he was having a go at the Pharisees, you have heard that it was said, oral law, never been an oral law. That's one of the arguments I have with the Jewish people. There is no such thing as the oral law. And they say, yes, there is. I said, we'll prove it. They can't. It's not in the scriptures. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say it is written. Why do you think this thing is here? It's the voice of God that comes down from heaven any time you want to open it up and read it. It's his voice to you. It's his voice to me. And it contains every guarantee that faith in Jesus Christ, belief and trust in Jesus Christ is all you need for heaven. It's the only thing you need. Oh, but look at the things I did in the past. Paul, the Apostle Paul, used to murder Christians. He used to have them arrested, tortured, put in prison, and some of them were executed. He was on his way to Damascus when he got saved to do exactly that. Paul calls himself the chiefest of sinners in the whole church. And he's still going to be up there. You know, one of the realities that a lot of Christians don't get is that one day you, one-on-one, -on -one, can talk to Paul. Do you understand that? And Abel, and Enoch, and Noah, and Shem, and Ham, uh, Japheth, not sure about Ham. <laughs> I had a laugh the other day when I was doing some devotional readings and I looked at uh, the name that God gave the first Jewish person after in, in Genesis 15 and 17, 15 when he was uh, saved because it was credited to him as right, righteousness. And I thought the subtle humor of God is amazing because his name is Abraham. And uh, as a Jewish person, I thought, find that mildly um, <laughs> embarrassing. But I said that to some of the Jewish people and they just looked at me, they didn't get the joke, but anyway... <laughs> You have a destiny up there. And I'm just going to quickly um, go across to a, a couple of um, verses because we're going to study the, the effects of the war uh, and I've got some, um, uh, some, some visuals for next week that's going to finish it all off. But, you know, one of the things that really is annoying me about the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war at the moment is that a lot of people understand that it's going to be sometime in the, in the future, but some people try and place it. People that I like, people that I respect, people that I admire, try and put it inside the seven-year tribulation period. And it's simply impossible for that to be. Why? Because of all of the verses that I've just read you out, what is the purpose of this war? That all the nations and Israel will know that I am God. Do you see what I mean? That's the whole point of it. What, what was the prophetic requirement for this war the the prophetic requirement was to display to the heathen nations the gentile nations that god is in control of 
everyone's life, every nation's life, every people's life, tribe and tongue and nation. He's in control of everything. And when you start to put things in the wrong place, for instance, if it's at the start, and I heard a, a guy that I really liked the other day, and they, everyone's talking about the Ezekiel 38-39 war over the last couple of weeks, and he says, I think it's just inside the start of the tribulation period. And I thought, it can't be. Because what starts the tribulation period? What is the only event that you can time this whole period to? It's one event. And it's called the signing of a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel, by a person we will know eventually as the Antichrist, we won't know him, the poor people there will know him, because he signs a covenant with Israel. And you know what? The, what most people don't understand is that when the Antichrist comes to the people of Israel and say, have I got a deal for you? The leadership of Israel in that time will sign it. And yet there's a severe warning in the scriptures for them not to do this. And I believe this is one of the things that the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 um, um, voiced to the leadership in Israel. Um, Isaiah 28 verses 14 to 19. Have you got your Bibles? This is just so profound. It's one of these dual fulfillment ones. There was um, attacks on, on Israel at the time of Isaiah from the Assyrians. But this is a double fulfillment. And even, uh, I think, Andy Woods and that came up with this as a double fulfillment uh, a few weeks ago. And in Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 19, this 1415 is the first half of the tribulation. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. So this is the leadership of Israel in the, when they signed the covenant with the Antichrist. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement, when the overflowing scourge passes through, this is the first half, the first three and a half years of this tribulation period, when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. For the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, Israel is under the protection of the Antichrist. Remember when Jesus said with a broken heart in Matthew, he said, I have come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. But one will come in his name, and him you will receive. And this is him. And this is the agreement that the leadership have signed. And 16 is this little uh, insert that God puts in there to show us that there is hope in any situation. In verse 16, Therefore says the Lord, uh, Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious stone, cornerstone, a sure foundation. Who's this? Who's the cornerstone? Who's the solid rock on which I stand? Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him, it's not in there, but it's in him, will not act hastily. They'll be telling the leadership, what have you done? What have you signed us into? What have you signed us up for? And the two witnesses in the streets of Jerusalem for the first three and a half years in Revelation 11 are saying this to the leadership. Verse 17, God says, I will make justice the measuring line, not dodgy deals, and righteousness the plummet. That is the plumb line. When you're setting up the future, when you're setting up a house, you need perfect dimensions, perfect walls, perfect slabs, otherwise it's going to be a mess. And, Jesus, and God is saying, I'm going to establish through Jesus Christ, the rock, the cornerstone, the measuring line, and the plummet. And the hail 
will sweep away the refuge of lies. This is now the second half of the tribulation when Antichrist reveals himself as the uh, ultimate enemy of Israel. And the waters will overflow the hiding place. This is, this is Israel in the first three and a half years. And your covenant with death, verse 18, will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through the second half of the tribulation, then you, Israel, will be trampled down by it. And as often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and day by day and day by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. In the first three and a half years, Israel is safe under the um, protection of Antichrist. This war can't take place there. And the other place that some people put it is at the uh, end of the um, seven-year tribulation, a war upon Jerusalem called Armageddon. Armageddon is where the armies actually gather. It's the Valley of Megiddo. In fact, if you watch Amir's um, updates um, from his house in the Galilee and you look over his shoulder, you can actually see the Valley of Megiddo over his shoulder. In the second half of the tribulation, at the very end of the tribulation, when these uh, armies attack Jerusalem, called the War of Armageddon, but it's, it's really not. It's, it's, that's the gathering place. This is the attack. It's the actual army of the Antichrist that is doing this. Do you see what I mean? So it's not this war. It can't be this war. It never will be this war. This war has to happen before the seven-year tribulation even takes place. Plenty of time. I've just seen some things at the back. It's not in the tribulation for obvious reasons. You need to just read your Bible and understand it's not there. So, where is it? It's before the tribulation. And it starts with this confirmation by the Antichrist. You, you all know uh, chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. If you can, just turn there, because there's stuff that people just gloss over that you're not really taught uh, in many instances when this passage is brought up to you. And Daniel 9, 26 and 27, most people can almost commit it, um, uh, speak it by memory. And verse 26, it's after 62 weeks, that's after the four, um, 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off. In the Hebrew, that's karat, that's executed, but not for himself. What does that phrase mean? Does anyone know what that phrase means? It means he's innocent. Jesus Christ was innocent, but he was executed for our sake. He died for our sake. He was buried for our sake. He rose again for our sake. So it's all in the plan of God. But Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come. Who's the prince who is to come? Antichrist. So the people of the Antichrist shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who was there in 70 AD that destroyed the temple and the city? The Romans. I don't know who the Antichrist is. I don't care who the Antichrist is because I have faith that I will not see the Antichrist. But here's a, a, a particular hint. And I don't preach it as doctrine. I don't say you've got to believe this, but the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And I think to myself, he could be Italian. Do you see what I mean? Everyone's looking at Emmanuel Macron or someone somewhere, and no one's looking at this particular verse, because the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. You know, the Roman army at this time was a massive army, but it was made up largely by mercenaries who were not Roman. 
that they had super legions that whenever they had to go to war for a particularly dangerous um, encounter, the Roman army would rely on its own fully Roman legions. And the legions that attacked under Cestus Gallius, the city of Jerusalem from 66 to 70 AD, were the 15th, 12th and 15th Roman legions. So God even arranged that not Gentiles would come, like not non-Romans, sorry, not, they wouldn't come and destroy the city in the sanctuary. It had to be Roman legions that did this. And I don't know, but it's just one of these things that when you read the scriptures carefully, uh, it's a hint for when people in the future will have to deal with this, that it will be brought to pass. I don't know. If he's Italian, I don't. It's not my problem. And by the way, it's not your problem. It's not your problem. And despite some of my favorite teachers saying, we'll be upstairs looking down from the mezzanine, I don't think so. You and I have got a lot to do up there, and it's being trained in righteousness to be beside Jesus in the thousand-year reign in the millennial kingdom. We won't be looking down on what's going on in the tribulation. Why? Because would you look at your family and friends? Would you want to see what's happening to them? That's not what we'll be doing up there. Revelation 19 says that we'll be washed clean, we'll be made spotless, without corruption. We will become the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. And the wedding supper will be in heaven and we'll come back with him and have the wedding feast on the earth. That's what we'll be doing in seven years. 27. Then he, this is the Antichrist, shall confirm, which is make, sign or enlarge, a covenant with the many, that's the Jewish people, for one week. But in the middle of the week you shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. At the end of the um, um, tribulation, there's a shocking um, verse that Jesus actually spoke in Matthew 24, verse 22. This is why you won't be looking um, down from up above. Jesus said in verse 22, And unless those days be shortened, no flesh, that's no flesh, no Jew or no Gentile will be saved, that is physically saved, not, not uh, salvation saved, but physically saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And you know what? There's so many people who misunderstand the elect's sake for those days will be shortened. Who's the elect in the tribulation? Israel. Why? Where are we? We're up there. You see, the elect in the Old Testament were the Jewish people. In the church age, it's you and I. And when the church is gone, it's back to Israel again. Listen, I'm going to, give you, I'm going to finish off with a very basic foundational lesson in dispensationalism. You've all got your Bibles. I've done this before, but there's a lot of new people. Open up your Bible. This is dispensationalism uh, 101. So you go to Genesis chapter 1. And I can remember one of my beloved brothers when I did this a few months ago. He was just amazed. And he's doing it again. It's all right, I'm looking at him. Um, Genesis 1 to Genesis, Genesis 11. All got that? Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. There's only Gentiles. No Jews. There's only Gentiles. So you then go from Genesis chapter 12 all the way up to Acts chapter 1. You all right? That's your Bible. That's Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles and Jews. Then you go from Acts chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 5. 
Well, actually, leave it at chapter 4. Five were up in heaven. Then you go to Revelation chapter 4. That's Jews, Gentiles, and the church. And when we're out of here, you go back to Revelation 19, and there's only Jews and Gentiles again. Do you understand that? First 11 chapters, Gentiles. From chapter 12 in Genesis to Acts chapter 1, before the church, is Jews and Gentiles. Once the church is initiated by the, um, by the apostles, by the Holy Spirit coming down on the day of Pentecost, right till we're out of here at the end of Revelation chapter 3, and we're up in heaven in 4 and 5, it's Jews, Gentiles, and the church. After we're up there, it goes back to being Jews and Gentiles again. And you've just passed Dispensationalism 101. And a lot of people don't get that, but it makes everything so clear if you understand those basic um, definitions. And then Jesus, when he sent, comes back, he sends his uh, angels out to the four corners of the earth to gather his elect, to gather his elect, his people. And a lot of people get upset about this. Oh, well... You know, are you sure it's Israel? Listen, he came the first time to who? And what did he offer them? Did they accept it? So the kingdom was never given to the church. The offer was rescinded. And it's going to be offered again in the second half of the tribulation. Remember that passage we wrote, read from Hosea 5, 15, 6, 1 and 2 last week? That's what the Jewish people in Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, they plead and they pray for the Lord to come back and save them. More than likely the people, the believing remnant in Petra Bosnia at that time. But they are pleading for God to come back and save them. And Jesus said, unless this time be shortened, no flesh would be saved. It's such a terrible time on this earth. And you and I aren't there because we believe in Jesus. But he comes back and he offers the kingdom to who again? The Jewish people. And this time they accept it. And they have the kingdom for a thousand years. And people are saying, but what are we doing? We're ruling and reigning with him. We don't... You see, it's beyond me why... Christians sometimes seem jealous about the Jewish people and what they get in the thousand-year reign of Christ. They get land, remember, from the river Euphrates to the river Nile. They get their Messiah ruling and reigning over them from Jerusalem. That's what they get. What do you and I get as heirs of Christ in all things according to Romans 8? We get the whole shebang, everything. If you and I want to go and have a look at um, Alpha, Alpha Centauri one day and just see the magnificent light display there, it takes us that long to get there, have a look, come back. We can do anything we like. We are co-heirs with Christ in all things. Why would we want that much land in the Middle East? I don't understand why people are jealous of what the Jewish people get. They get Jesus as their Messiah ruling in Jerusalem, they get a thousand years in that piece of land. What do we get? We get everything. We get everything because we're co-heirs with Jesus in everything. Read Romans chapter 8. And so many people just make that mistake. And notice where Jesus came to. What city did he came, come to 2,000 years ago? Jew? Jerusalem. What city is he coming back to soon? Not New York, not Beijing, not Canberra, not Perth. Mind you, I wouldn't blame him if he picked Perth. It's a nice place. He's coming back to Jerusalem. And if you understand that, you understand everything that's coming forward. In front of us, you are, 
you are understanding everything that is set before the people of this earth. And next week, I'm going to show you why in Revelation chapter 6, when God's judgment is falling on the people in verse uh, 17, they know that the unsaved who are running and hiding in the rocks and the caves, they know where it's coming from. Because they cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, of, sorry, he who sits on the throne and his Lamb. They know where it's coming from. Why? Because in this war, they've already received it. They've already seen it. They've already seen the consequences of it. And what does God say in these verses that I read out today? Is that the nations and Israel will know that I am God. There is no other. There is no other name on earth by which Man might be saved. In heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. He's the only way we are going to get up there. He's the only way that you and I are going to be restored to our Father. And you know, Sue, uh, my wife, just made the, the, the um, observation. I'm finishing with this that as she's been talking to her um, siblings over the last couple of months, they're getting harder and harder and harder. And so are my two brothers. They're getting harder and harder. It's like as God is making himself more and more manifest in the days that we live. You know, COVID-19 was the best thing for the Christian church in the world. Do you know why? Because it shook the church and those who were just pew sitters and not believers have fallen away. And you know, people who were out there unsaved were saying, What's going on? Do you know what they were doing? They're coming to church and asking, What's going on? It's the best thing that happened to it. It's a terrible thing to happen, but it has been a shaking for the church and it's been a shaking for the whole world. And you know what? The division between believers and unbelievers seems to be getting wider and wider. They're getting harder. They're getting angrier at everything that's happening in the world. But you know, the Holy Spirit's still at work. There are still people getting saved every day around this world. And our sister in England, who might be watching even now, had a marvellous breakthrough this week. John Baker's um, sister-in-law. Witnessing to a young man for a long time, and she ended up giving him the little um, Donald Trump coin. Have you, have you ever seen it? The little Trump, Donald Trump coin? Some of you are going, what's he talking about? I'll bring, I'll bring it next week and show you. It's like someone has pressed a little coin, a memorial coin about that round, and it's got Donald Trump as King Cyrus, letting the, protecting the Jewish people. And we've got, we were given two of them. We've still got them uh, on our bedside table. But Jill was using that with this young man. And it got him through to the kingdom. Not that, but her witness using that about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's still going. He's still active saving people. And one of the things you can say if they ask what's going on in this world, you, if you read your Bible, if you're literate, if you know what's going on, you're going to say, soon this is going to happen. These things are going to happen because God has said it in his word. But you know, he loves you. And if you accept Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, you'll be with us and we'll be going up there. And he's saving people every day around this world. So sometimes we get a bit down if we look at events in this world. But the nations and Israel and you and I will know that he is God. Because he brings his word to pass. And if he said it, he will do it. So Father, I just thank you now for, for the time together, for this um, 
this ability to gather, Father, in this room and to impact spiritually the houses and the people around us, Father, as you showed us in Russia in 1998. Whenever your people, Father, gather, we shine a light into the darkness so that people might see and be drawn to that light, be drawn to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus. And Father, you will be glorified by every one of your children that you have before you in heaven. And I just thank you for the matchless, matchless privilege it is to be amongst Christians, to share the word, to share fellowship, and to know that there is soon coming an event when we will be in your presence. And I thank you now, Father, from the bottom of my heart, in Jesus' name, amen.